Hey folks, Duncan here with a bit of an intro before we kick this pod off. A lot has happened since we recorded this uh, really awesome interview uh, last week on this file. So I'm just going to kind of summarize a couple of news stories that you're going to need to know about kind of coming into this pod and things that you should know about going out of this pod. So Treaty 8 First Nations walked out of a meeting with Jason Kenney. Uh, they did this ostensibly over uh, child care, but there's you know a lot of chatter that this might be related to the uh, unsatisfaction with the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, which is something we go into a lot of detail to into on this pod. Uh, the morning of February 19th, a group calling itself the Cousins of Wet'suwet'en set up a blockade on CN rail tracks just outside of Edmonton. Uh, they were soon handed an injunction or a lawsuit. It's still a little foggy about what actually happened. And then more disturbingly, uh, a group of like literally volunteer militiamen, you know, a mix of yellow vesters and United We Roll people showed up to actually like harass and tear down the blockade uh, that these folks had set up. And that is, I just want to point out, like literally, you know, 1930s Italian fascismo shit. And finally... And hilariously, uh, the Liberals also just announced that they will be delaying their promised bill on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, something that's usually called UNDRIP. And they're delaying this this bill as a result of the ongoing solidarity blockades and actions that have sprung up across the nation in regards to the uh, the uh, assault and invasion of Wet'suwet'en territory by the RCMP. And um, so that's just a few of the things you got to know going into this pod. But enjoy it; it's a lot of fun. It's a it's it's, well, maybe not fun is the wrong word, but it's a lot of good information in here, and I hope you like it. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichiwa Skygan, otherwise known as Edmonton, here in Treaty 6 territory. And today, we're very lucky to have Rob Houle in studio with us. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, Rob is a writer, a researcher, a historian, a political dude. He is from uh, Swan River First Nation in Treaty 8 territory. He has worked in Treaty Number 6 for a number of years and has married into Treaty 7. Rob, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Duncan. It's uh, great, great to be here, and it's a great opportunity to have a chat with you about many different indigenous political things. Yeah, like there's two, I think, big news stories that that have popped up just recently that I think set the stage for our conversation that I just we would be remiss to not talk about, and that is, you know, the ongoing um, issue with the RCMP invasion of Wet'suwet'en territory and the like resulting blockades and direct action. Um, the, the movement of direct actions that has kind of taken place all over the country in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en. And then I think the Alberta context uh, um, in that is not only our, our pension, the AIMCO being involved in that project, in the Coastal Gasoline Pipeline project, but also um, Chief Alan Adam of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation um, writing a letter to both Jason Kenney and the federal environment minister saying, uh, you probably shouldn't approve this uh, this giant oil sands mine that we previously were uh, pretty in favor of because of all these reasons. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I reached out to you to have you on this pod after a, a thread you wrote on Twitter talking about, you know, Alberta's Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. Yep, the AIOC, yep. And and this this 
project. This is a Kenny like baby, right? He talked about it on the campaign trail. He's he's he put it quickly put it into law when he won government. Uh, and this Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation is 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 at fundamentally at the core of what Chief Alan Adam is angry about in regards to this tech frontier mine. And it is just emblematic of this toxic patronationalism that Jason Kenney is all about that really plays into like what's happening with the Wet'suwet'en. So I think it's worth just hearing straight from the horse's mouth, straight from Jason Kenney, what his goals are with Indigenous people and what this Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation is all about. Very great start to an important relationship between uh, Alberta's new government uh, and our First Nations, uh, who I always say were, uh, their ancestors were Alberta's first entrepreneurs. Uh, and uh, while there's been a, a lot of great progress to celebrate in our First Nations, uh, the truth is that uh, there's still uh, too many uh, Aboriginal Albertans who live in poverty who have not enjoyed the prosperity of this province. And our government is determined uh, to work collaboratively with our First Nations to change that, uh, to ensure that Aboriginal Albertans are full partners in prosperity. That's why we will be creating the new Indigenous Opportunities Corporation backstop initially by billion dollars of uh, support from the Alberta government to promote uh, financial participation in and, and an ownership stake in major uh, projects that can help to lift people from poverty to prosperity. Friends, today Alberta is making history. Today we are recognizing that we must be partners in prosperity with our First Nations in the responsible development of the resources that lie below the lands that were first inhabited by today's Indigenous people. Uh, for too long, our Indigenous people have not benefited fully from the enormous value of the resources uh, in Alberta. Uh, happily, many First Nations have participated in the development of those resources. And increasingly, under strong leadership, we see Alberta First Nations uh, moving forward as partners in prosperity uh, by embracing enterprise and partnerships with resource companies. Our Indigenous people were the first entrepreneurs uh, in the North American continent. Uh, it, it was their ancestors who first uh, plied the rivers of what is now Alberta uh, in their canoes, those canoes often sealed by bitumen. We are creating what I think will be a game changer in uh, Indigenous Crown relations and our ability to get our resources to market. With the recent adoption of the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, backstopped by a billion dollars of the faith and credit of the Alberta Crown to facilitate Aboriginal financial participation in and co-ownership of major resource projects. I, I truly believe that it is a moral obligation of this generation of Canadians to ensure that our Indigenous people benefit materially from the responsible development of the resources that lie below the lands that their ancestors first inhabited. Alberta has already been, in one of the many ways in which we have been a great example of social mobility and progress, is through the inclusion of our Indigenous people in resource development, uh, with by far Canada's highest levels of employment and incomes for Indigenous Canadians, thanks in large part to the progressive and visionary leadership 
of our resource companies, but we have only just begun. We need to move beyond contracts and benefit agreements to facilitating actual ownership stake for our First Nations, uh, and we are determined to do that. And I believe this will be the game changer in getting resort in market access for our world-class resources. And so uh, the Prime Minister and I are agreed that we should have that First Nations should have substantial equity ownership position uh, in the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and we're keen to work with Ottawa to make sure that this happens. And this is one of the reasons that we've created the Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. We've also created the Indigenous Legal Defence Fund to give a fair voice share to the vast majority of Western Canadian First Nations who are in favour of responsible resource development but too often have been crowded out and left aside when it comes to debates on energy and the environment. And so this is a fund that will help to bring the voice of pro-development nations into our courts because they have a right to assert uh, their right to, uh, to economic development, to be partners in prosperity, to move their people from poverty to prosperity. I would say it is somewhat, somewhat ironic that governments and energy companies alike are finally embracing First Nations co-ownership of resource industries at a time when those industries are facing dramatic challenges and sustained attacks at both, both at home and abroad. Okay, uh, where do you want to start? <laughs> well, it's, it's got a very conservative feel to it, the very possessive, uh, again, our First Nations, our Indigenous Albertans, Indigenous Canadians. It whitewashes the fact that we don't exist within those kind of constructs, that there are sacred agreements and covenants that put us outside of the Canadian mechanism as something different. But then, again, the the usual approach of governments that don't really respect your rights is that they'll say you're just like everybody else and and you're not special. And I that's mean, what you get from some of that stuff. I mean, it is dripping in settler colonial ideology, right? Like mm -hmm. he says, our indigenous people, our First Nations, four or five times. You know, he says, Alberta's first entrepreneurs to describe indigenous people a bunch of times, which strikes me as a very interesting uh, reframing of indigenous mm -hmm. people and their relationship to, um, you know, the economy and trade. Um that is probably much more uh, that is not necessarily in line with reality. Um, you know, the, the moral obligation that like settlers have, I mean, we have a moral obligation as settlers to indigenous people in Alberta and it's in the context of all the treaties that we mm -hmm. signed. Right. Like um, it's, it is, uh, I mean, I'm not going to do a, a Zizek impersonation, but it is, you know, that there is a lot of trash can ideology happening here. Yeah, yeah, and that that's kind of um again the the old style old stock way of approaching indigenous people and 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 I think that's tantamount to some of the stuff that he learned in his federal political days from Mr. Old Stock himself, uh Mr. Harper and and it's just a transference of that and and the real the thing that should really piss people off is that behind all of this rhetoric and, and ambience is the speaking points and the talking points about him and his indigenous friends and how he grew up and he went to school with all these people and they were best buddies and whatever else. But you can't be best buddies with someone when you're 
actually discrediting and disvaluing them as a person and their rights as indigenous people, right? Yeah, I mean, if the whole system is built on oppression, you're not working to overturn, overcome that oppression. Like, giving indigenous people an ownership stake in a pipeline is a pittance, right? Like, when, when you look at the amount of of economic activity, the amount of, like, just straight-up cash settlers have extracted from, you know, the traditional ter- territories of so many indigenous people, like, here's a 10% in a, in a pipeline, like, mm-hmm. like who gives a shit. Right. And like, and if we were, we're truly, if we're truly looking at, at indigenous self-determination in regards to their own prosperity, like why not just give them their land back? Yeah. Their land and, and their resources and, or acknowledge and respect the, the agreements and the treaties as they're written and as they're interpreted in oral history. Um, it was never supposed to be, uh, land transaction. It was supposed to be a sharing arrangement. And and as you start to understand how we got to where we were with those agreements and those arrangements and the 200-plus years of economic trade that happened before those covenants and those signed documents and entered into treaty and whatever else, you start to understand how the process was actually very, very manipulative and pulled the rug out from the people that were negotiating at the time and cut them a very raw deal. So let's get into the details of this, you know, indigenous opportunities corporation, right? I mean, Jason Kenney, I mean, the most, the vast majority of what he was talking about in those, in those clips was this indigenous opportunities corporation. He clearly sees this as a linchpin of his, you know, quote unquote, you know, reconciliation strategy. Um, Let's get into the details of this thing. Like, what do you think it's supposed to do? What is its what is its stated purpose? Like, who is behind it? Who's serving on the board? Like, let's get into the details here. Yeah, so it is a it is a crown corporation enshrined through legislation, which is different than although uh, the head of the Canadian Energy Center was misspoken when he said that they were a crown corporation. They are not; they're a private entity. This entity, this organized AIOC, is actually a crown corporation, which means it has a connection to the crown um, and a real connection. And if you look into the legislation and and Bill 14 that was drafted, um, and you start to read into the details, there's some indemnity clauses in there that aren't usual in in other pieces of legislation, uh, which speaks to a much broader purpose. And then there is a caveat in there that it it outlines exactly that it is a Crown Corporation and has certain duties that the Crown would have. And one of those duties that uh, Chief Allen Adam alludes to is the duty to consult. So once you start to to look at the broader picture, start to look through the details and read between the lines, you start to see there's a some sort of plan or strategy here. And and that this Crown Corporation has earmarked for it uh, $24 million over four years, which works out to $6 million operating per year. That's designed to do something there's no details on what it will do hold meetings i mean they certainly hold didn't spend meetings. it they certainly didn't spend it on the fucking website yeah that's no for sure. no it's <laughs> definitely not on the website um which is a big letdown um it's not for grants as far as we can see because that's that's not that much money especially it's not a billion dollars backstopping grants or whatever else um and then they have an interim executive director um whose name is mark 
Michelis or something to that effect. No one, I've never heard of him or, or run into him in any of my professional days and whatever else. And then they have, uh, they just announced their board of directors. Mm-hmm. And that's, that was one of the things that you were talking about on Twitter was, was that this board of directors, um, who was on it, how it was composed, you had some concerns. Well, what were those? Well, it's definitely falls short from a game changer, as as the premier alluded to. Um, it's more of the same board construction that we've seen from governments time and time again. Um, the minister, when they were doing the parade around selling the idea, was promising that there would be a majority Indigenous board. And what we have here is not that case. We have three Indigenous people on a board of eight, uh, so vastly outnumbered. Uh, I think I made the point on Twitter that we couldn't even get parity for an Indigenous-focused entity. Um, so how do you expect a board that is a minority Indigenous to have any effect or change in the systems and structures that exist? And it's definitely not going to change any aspects of the game as far as we can see right now. And as a crowd corporation and written into the legislation is this ability to essentially have the Minister of Indigenous relations tell the AIOC what to do. They're allowed to issue directives. Um, You know, it's not independent. It's not arm's length in any meaningful way. And and it certainly seems to be an extremely political um, project that Jason Kenney, that's why he's built this thing, right? I mean, he mentioned it in those clips. It it seems like it's explicitly built to um, backstop an eventual purchase of a portion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline by Indigenous groups. Yeah, and, and, and the people that are appointed on there um, have a background in oil and gas and, and, and the resource extraction in the, pro- in the province. There's no connection to green energy as far as, we can, as far as I can see or Indigenous people can see when they start to look at the structure. Um, so then it seems to be leaning in, in one direction, which is more investment into a dying industry uh, that even the Premier most recently admitted that the industry is we gotta, dying. We got to transition at yeah. some point. So he said, "Jason Kenny wants to uh, to phase out the oil sands." You heard it here first. Yep. So with these people that are on there now, having all that background, uh, it's contrary to what the minister was also saying when he was parading the idea around: is that oh, you know, renewables will be part of this this corporation um, without the experts within the board to even determine what good renewables would be investable. Um, doesn't seem like that's a reality or in the future. For... And, and it looks to me like it's a blunt weapon kind of being constructed to have Indigenous people, you know, own a portion of, of say, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, maybe the, eventually the Coastal Gasling Pipeline, and, and use that as a rhetorical tool to be like, uh, look, Indigenous people are fine with it, <laughs> you know, to not actually recognize that, like, an Indigenous nation, like, say, the Tsleil-Waututh, uh, at the terminus of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, that's their territory. They've lived there forever. They, their neighbors don't get a vote on on whether that project goes through their mm-hmm. territory and their land. Like imagine it's like living on a block um, uh, and all the houses around you got sold. Um, you're under no obligation to also sell your house, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not an election. It's not first past the post. These are, especially in BC, right? These, these, these there's, there's never been treated. There's never, this is like unceded territory. Uh, and it just seems like a rhetorical tool that's being built to be like, look, indigenous people think it's good, build it. Yeah, yeah, and and from um, the evidence in the courts and and things like that, there's definitely been this trend 
in the later days of, of this country around, if you get indigenous allies on board, you can start to force things through. And I think it speaks a lot to this old stock mentality that the premier and, and people in his government have of, well, if we get enough of our indigenous friends on board, then we can ram it through anywhere. And, and in that clip, there was a point around getting our resources to market. Well, um, the thing about that is Alberta being where we are situated, uh, we have to go through other indigenous people's territories to get any of our resources to market. Um, and I think the approach of things like the AIOC will be that, well, if we get enough Indigenous people participating within our province and other provinces, then it makes it maybe a more legally sound argument to ram things through, which, of course, leads to just long-winded legal battles and lawyers getting paid at the end of the day. I'm just going to, uh, to read, just going to read a bit from this letter from Chief Alan Adam to all the chiefs meeting with Premier Kenny. Dear Chiefs, I am writing you in advance of the All Chiefs meeting with Premier Kenny on February 12th regarding a pressing matter. Over the past several months, Athabasca Chippewa and First Nation has continued to push Alberta to mitigate some of the environmental and social impacts of the Tech Frontier Project that fall outside of Tech and the federal government's control. Uh, the Athabasca Chippewa and First Nation is the closest nation to the proposed project, and issues like threats to water levels on the Athabasca River, bison habitat, and migra migratory birds are all very important to us. We have a similar table with Canada where they have dealt with our concerns constructively. Tech has also been very good at cooperating with us to address these concerns, but they can only do so much. Throughout this process, Alberta has made it clear that they will not fulfill their duty under Section 35 of the Constitution to consult and accommodate. ACF ACFN, the acronym for Athabasca Chippewa and First Nation, is a supporter of the Tech Frontier Project. However, Alberta's refusal to work with us respectfully jeopardizes the project's federal approval, putting jobs and benefits for our nation and all Albertans at risk. Premier Kenny has been vocal in the media, blaming Canada for delaying the project. However, the truth is that it is Alberta's refusal to co cooperate in good faith that puts the project at risk. Instead, Alberta has told us repeatedly that they would rather deal with us through the Indigenous Opportunities Corp Corporation. Setting aside Alberta's failure to consult, here's why this is a bad idea. And then it's like literally like 12 things. Mm -hmm. 12 uh, points, yeah. Yeah, and then of the highlights... Um, of the highlights from this, I think I will just highlight a handful of them. The fund is marketed as a way for nations to get out of poverty. However, it requires a $20 million upfront payment by the nation in order to apply. For, for, any, for many nations, this amount is out of reach. For nations fortunate, fortunate enough to be able to reach the $20 million threshold, all the program does is back loans. Some nations do not need the support, and the Alberta government has no plans to assist nations in that position. The only thing the Alberta government is offering in this case is debt. This money can also be only used to invest in oil and gas projects, activities that contribute to the climate crisis and are increasingly viewed by institutional investors and central banks as soon-to-be-stranded assets. Investors around the world are fleeing these types of companies, which is why the Alberta government wants us to give them your money. This fund is essentially a way for the government to take money intended for First Nations and funnel it to their friends in the oil and gas sector. Like, boom. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's all these other things, but it's like, uh, I mean, there it is, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then finally, I mean, there's more, but I think this final point is, is, is a point that we also wanted to talk about, too. And that this fund will pit First Nations against one another by giving nations outside of Alberta access to capital to develop oil and gas projects on your traditional territory. 
Yep. And this is also the converse, right? Like this, this fund will in, enable, uh, you know, first nations based in Alberta to invest in projects that, that, that are going through uh, other nations territory and other parts of Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's, that's also the converse is also true, right? Yeah. The legislation is written so that it, it can be malleable and also on the AIOC website, they make reference to what their mandate and what the possibilities are. And that is one of them as well. But the caveat on that is that it requires a first nation uh, from Alberta to have at least 25% invested in that project already, which again, like the chief said, um, $20 million is, is the key in the door first. And then before you can even talk about accessing anything else, you need to have that upfront 20 minutes or go into debt, like he says. Another interesting point within that letter is the reference to the Alberta Lottery Fund, right? And, and a large portion of uh, the lottery fund, 30% of the lottery fund, is funded through First Nations gaming um, in the province. And... When they passed the budget, they took all of that money and put it into the GRF, the General Revenue Fund. It's just um, their money now. It's their money now. Um, so people, organizations, charities that were relying on that lottery fund are kind of in limbo. And then the First Nations who had been receiving that FNDF allocations and things like that, they're also up in the air in limbo. And then it depends on whether or not <clears throat> this money will simply be used to fund the operations of the AIOC because it was bringing in around 30%, which can be upwards of 250 to 500 million a year, which again translates to over four years, a billion dollars backstopping indigenous investments, right? Yeah, like the, the, letter, the part of the letter of Chief Allen Adams' letter that deals with this is, um, now there are credible suspicions that the Kenny government is planning to divert this money, specifically this Alberta Lottery Fund money, towards programs that only support the oil and gas sector, like the Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. Mm-hmm. Like we've we've seen this in regards to other parts of Jason Kenny's strategy too, right? Like uh, taking um, uh, the teachers' pension away and kind of having proxies in the media and back channel government and government officials back channeling to reporters and columnists that that they're going to be investing that money in oil and gas like post secondaries yeah exactly right like just recently blackrock uh blackrock you know like one of the, the largest investment firm on this planet you know trillions of dollars under control announced you know a project where they'll no longer be investing in oil sands projects like mm-hmm. like the, the the writing is on the wall here and um and not not to mention that conventional oil and gas in this province essentially hasn't made any money over the past decade it is uh yeah it is it screams of like jason kenny raiding you know the public treasury in order to prop up his friends yep in, in yep. oil and gas yeah and, and, and indigenous peoples and um, and indigenous peoples and and it makes it even more troubling when it is indigenous people who he again has a moral obligation to help yet uh, we remain at the margins of of every aspect of social health education um, making small incremental steps forward but again lacking the real investment in time that it's required to bring us back up to equity where we existed when this whole relationship started before uh, colonization and things like that really took over 
Yeah, and, and it is really indicative of Kenny's. This is this this in, Indigenous Opportunities Corporation is the linchpin of Kenny's strategy for dealing with Indigenous people, right? The, that and this uh, this legal challenge, uh, yeah, <laughs> argument, which is again, um, you know, part of this divide and conquer strategy, right? Like this legal fund is going to fund. It's like ten million dollars set aside. It's supposed to be able. It's supposed to fund the legal challenges for essentially for First Nations to sue other First Nations about resource projects, right? Yeah, so if if now that Chief Alan Adam has posted this objection letter, um, if if a First Nation was invested in this oil sands project, either neighboring or anywhere else with, else within the province, and didn't like that this was happening, they could then access this ten million dollar fund to sue another First Nation um, to try to get them to stand down or back off or file injunctions or things like that. Or to get recompense for lost value, whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah like to essentially it's a legal harassment fund that like where provincial dollars are going to go to first nations who are willing to sue other first nations. Yeah. And this, and this again draws back to kind of the federal strategy of, of previous governments around, uh, dividing and conquering around, uh, pipeline corridors and things like that and working on the consultation aspect and not necessarily the accommodation aspect and then getting people to sign on board and then taking those documents and those support letters to court and saying well we have all these people with us these kind of na- hand-picked naysayers don't really matter because it's in the public good that we continue to carry these projects forward yeah and I don't really have a good segue to get into this, but I, I think one of the things we have to talk about in this conversation is Wexit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, the movement, if you want to call it that, to separate Alberta, maybe Saskatchewan from Canada. And the reason why Wexit is a thing is because, I mean, Jason Kenney has been fanning the flames of Wexit. You know, he swears up and down that he is committed a federalist, but he is... Uh, continually talks about Western alienation and, and definitely feeds the kind of like Western Canadian victim complex. He's one of its chief kind of proponents. But the reason why Wexit is something that we got to talk about is because the one thing that like the Alberta political and media class have not dealt with in the context of talking about Wexit is what happens to the treaties mm-hmm. <laughs> in the context of Wexit. Because I mean, if we were to just you know, if th- those treaties were signed with the crown, like before Alberta was a province, yep. Um, what happens if if Alberta separates uh, from Canada? Yeah. So because because of the first treaty in in kind of Alberta, there's a sliver of Treaty Number Four down down in the southern part of the province, but then the the major one is Treaty Number Six, which you know, of course stretches from the Rocky Mountains all the way to Manitoba. Um, it was signed in 1876, uh, some 29 years before the province was created and established. Um, so there are they are international agreements and covenants and 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 something that the crown and especially the British monarchy was doing all over the world when they were going around and colonizing all these different places and, and taking different territories and resources. They were signing treaties all over the place. Um, because within the international context and within the authority of the church and the state and things like that, you needed to do this with indigenous peoples in order to have access to the lands and resources other than uh, outright destroying them, which other countries have done and yeah. tried to do. United States, for instance, just yeah. straight up like murdered a good chunk of all the indigenous people in there. Yeah, here in Canada, we kind of 
they kind of kindly, gently murdered uh, swaths of indigenous people. Very, very polite of us. Yeah, yeah. very, very polite. Um, so they exist in an international context. So, so once um, you start to break these international covenants, um, international law has, has stipulated that once that starts to happen, then once you break an agreement, like any other contract, um, it becomes null and void. And then the goods or the lands or the resources that you are trading within that contract or that agreement go back to the original owner. Mm-hmm. So in T- this sense... Title would revert back yeah. to the original owner. Title would revert. And, and we see that in BC because there is no treaty or ceded territory. Um, Chilcotin said that Aboriginal title still exists here because there was no treaty, there was no negotiations, there wasn't any of that stuff. There was no fight. There was no no battle. Yeah. So it reverts and it still exists there. Um, And again, here in Alberta and and Saskatchewan and other parts of the country that have treaty, um, the Crown and provinces have relied a lot on the written word of the treaty. Uh, But again, other cases in BC have said, well, you have to interpret the oral as well. And it's also important, and I mentioned it earlier, to connect to the historical relationship, the economic relationship that existed some 200 years before the treaties happened. So again, if if Wexit was to be authentic and and real and understood what they were actually talking about, um, then what we're talking about is for in order for Alberta to separate and become its own country, then you need to start negotiating and first revert the lands back to the original holders mm-hmm. and then we can start to negotiate what it looks like moving forward <laughs> yeah 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 that's totally what's on their brain that's that's exactly how they're approaching it um and yeah and, and they would have absolutely zero fucking leverage with <laughs> with the indigenous nations who who's uh who would have the title to the land right like yep. the um the fact that like as a as an absolutely foundational part of any type of separation talk has to deal with the fact that indigenous people are here they never went away they like they live here their territories their nations are still here i mean it speaks to the just the like overwhelming whiteness and like how you know powerful the settler colonial mindset is when we talk about issues like these but like if you were listening to this and you uh, know are in the media or know someone is in the media and you are talking about Wexit in any way like you have to bring up treaties like you have to uh it is a, it is a golden opportunity to talk about not only is it is is this i mean i believe that Wexit is just a, an extremely cynical ploy by jason kenny to like create enemies and to keep people mad and angry mm-hmm. and fearful um you know for a government that needs you know, needs to create these enemies in order to have kind of a pliant populace. Um, and, and I think, I mean, if, if the separatist movement in Canada and Alberta ever gained any actual real power, was ever actually able to, um, to do anything, I think like the conservative movement would actually like do its level best to quash it. But sometimes these things get out of their control. Sometimes politicians stoke things that they grow out of their control. This, this has the possibility of growing into that. And it's, it's worth talking about. Um, you know, th- this this context of treaty, though, I mean, Jason Kenney doesn't seem to have a very firm understanding of the treaty relationship either. <laughs> well, I, I think he probably does in a sense of he takes the approach that they're frozen in time, um, frozen in 1876 and 1879 and, and, and 1899 in terms of treaty number eight. Uh, they're frozen there. And, and you see it in some of his speaking points as well, right? The, their ancestors took these resources and stewarded these lands. Well, yeah, and also us today, because we're still here. We didn't 
go anywhere. You didn't. You didn't yeah. go extinct. Yeah, we didn't stop <laughs> stewarding the lands. We didn't stop accessing the resources. We didn't stop doing some of those things because, like, Chief Adam and other nations in the north are very involved in the developments and have agreements and, and things in place. Um, I mean, Chief Adam has like a street. Like he's got a company oil sands service company that's worth like tens of millions of dollars yeah yeah so they are actively participating but you see it in the in the rhetoric of the government on well their ancestors were and and we're trying to bring these new indigenous people these new age indigenous people up to speed with the rest of society right which again if i was friends with mr kenny i would take a slight to some of those comments because it speaks to indigenous people again being behind everything else when in reality we were far ahead of everybody else when contact first happened. Yeah, I, I mean, remind the listeners that people weren't bathing <laughs> in Europe at that time of contact. Right. Well, the only reason settlers were able to come out here or explorers were able to come out here and not die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Was by the grace of of the indigenous folks who were here at the time. I mean, one way that I, one way I think we can understand a bit of get a bit of insight into Jason Kenney's relationship to treaty. Is uh, is a story from uh, late 2018, where this was before he was premier, but he was, um, he was uh, he was giving a speech to the Rural Municipalities Association of Alberta, and he was talking about uh, opening up hundreds of thousands of acres of crown land for sale to farmers. This is up in in Treaty territory. I think mm-hmm. uh, I think there's a bunch of Mennonite ter- farmers up in this part up of around the, the high level area. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, yeah. And the backlash to this from Treaty 8 was like, you, you can't just sell it, man. Like, there's mm-hmm. if you're going to sell crown land, especially that much crown land, like, there's processes and consultation and this, that, and the other thing that you have to do because, like, we manage this land as well, like, as part of a treaty thing. And this quote from Kenny, I think, is extremely emblematic. This is not land in a reserve or treaty area. It's crown land. And it's land that belongs to Albertans, which is not being put to economic use right now, Kenny said. The whole province was built on converting crown land into productive economic use, and the notion that all of northern Alberta should suddenly be turned into a park runs contrary to our entire history as a people. Hmm. I mean that. I mean that first sentence, right? This is not land in a reserve or treaty area. I mean, it is clearly land in a treaty area. <laughs> like all of Alberta is treaty land. Yeah, yeah, and it is land within Treaty Number Eight. So I don't know specifically. If, yeah. yeah, and I don't know if he hasn't looked at a map recently <laughs> or. Or I know he has a Ministry of Indigenous Relations that produces treaty maps, so maybe he can pick one of those up and see that it is all treaty territory. So, I mean, but this the the backlash from like the Treaty Eight Grand Chief Arthur Noski was swift, and and other chiefs in Treaty Eight territory were like, uh, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I think that that is a real interesting peek into like what his real understanding of treaty is, and and how he views Indigenous people, and like why everything he's doing around indigenous people is focused around economic development. And that's, that, that is his only lens. Uh, and economic development in this case means oil and gas. Yeah. And that, that his only lens of, of reaching out to indigenous people and building a relationship is constructed and centered around um, pulling, you know, dinosaur sludge out of the ground for cash. Yeah. And it's connected to some of their, their, narrow understanding of treaty and 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 the frozen in time approach and then on top of that um piling on the the nrta of 1930 um which a lot of people don't 
understand, don't talk about, don't don't know a lot about. Um, but it it is essentially the unilateral arrangement between the provinces and the federal government of the time to transfer the ownership, air quotes, big air quotes, of all resources, live game, and things like that in the western provinces to the provincial control. And and this, uh, I mean, this natural resource transfer agreement is something that um, I mean, not a lot of white people know about. Not a lot, not not a lot of white people or settlers are considering this. But this is essentially the foundational document that allows uh, an oil company to go onto treaty land and just take whatever the hell they want. Yeah, and it and it authorizes, and Chief Adam alludes to it in his letter, the roles of the provinces in stewarding these resources as well. Um, and again, when they passed it in 1930 through legislation, um, indigenous people couldn't even hire lawyers at the time. So there was no mechanism for them to battle this, and they definitely weren't involved in any of the consultation around it. Um, and it was a movement for people like Mackenzie King to transfer and take a federalist approach to constructing a country um, at the time. So it, it created a lot of uh, a lot of the rhetoric that you hear nowadays, um, especially in this province. Other provinces like Saskatchewan and Manitoba have taken a more liberal approach where they've got resource revenue sharing agreements and things like that in place um, to try to calm some of these these fires and these fights. But here in Alberta, they've always taken a very line-in-the-sand, letter-for-letter, black-and-white approach to the NRTA and what their perceived obligations and ownerships are within that framework. Yeah, like, like let's let's just kind of say it in plain language. Like, the Natural Resources Transfer Agreement was this thing that was— this. it's viewed in, by Alberta, like, conservatives and—, and, um, and uh, like oil and gas millionaires as this foundational document, as this thing that allowed Canada to finally become, you know, a proper federation and where provinces had the ability to control their own resources. Right. And they think that it erases treaty. Yeah. yeah. And that, it, yeah. And then, and then that this, this, this document erases, you know, the documents that were signed earlier and agreements signed earlier between treaty people. But like, like what is the like whole depth of a plow thing? Right. Like, like I'm pretty sure oil and gas Mm-hmm. is uh that we're drilling holes that are that are far below the depth of a plow and that like I, our treaties i can't remember which treaty has that language in it but like um, it's, it's pretty much all the number of treaties in the area have some reference to farming and the depth of a plow um treaty number eight speaks specifically to um hunting uh hunting and farming implements right and, and some of those relationships developed from there um so and and it's very important that outside of that concept context is also the oral interpretation, um, and then and it's also important to recognize um, the people that weren't at treaty and 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 people like Sylvia McAdam talk about the role of the women and, and how indigenous people are matriarchal in nature. There were no women at the negotiations, uh, so there are stories in oral history about the negotiations happening, the conversations happening, people leaving, Indigenous leaders leaving the conversations for hours at a time, and then they would come back and they would have a different kind of conversation after that. That was because they were going back to report back to their bosses and then getting better directions about what to ask for. Again, all of this stuff surprisingly didn't make it into the written text of of the treaty and things like that, but um, there's definitely more to treaty than just the way it's written and the way that Mr. Kenny and others see it. 
but the legal implications of of the natural resources transfer agreement are huge right like if canada has been illegally uh you know pumping oil out of the ground mm-hmm. for the past 90 years yep. since, since 1930 um it would seem that like reparations are possibly in order uh, profit sharing um actually just forfeiture of lands and forfeiture of inf- infrastructure like i mean you pull on the thread of canada too hard and and you kind of quickly run up against these examples of like oh wow like we really did kind of just create this country out of out of um you know sticky tack and and string and that that you pull on it too hard and it all falls apart yeah once you start to, to delve into conversation pieces around indian monies and and money and resources gained from indigenous territories and and the role of the crown in managing those funds and things like that then you talk about the nrta and how it it started to remove some of those lands and those territories unilaterally um, selling them off giving permits away extracting resources we're talking about billions and trillions of dollars that indigenous people if they still control those territories would be in charge of um and that's kind of what's always hampered any kind of legal approach or or challenge of the NRTA is that uh, in this Canadian court context, it is it is the big game. It's the Stanley Cup final. It is the the one to take it all. And in order to put for First Nations, put all their eggs in that basket and to challenge it. It's very daunting because then you would undo a lot of the work and a lot of the victories that have been done or achieved to date. So it's it's always this tedious speaking point, but it's also something that needs to be talked about and managed and under the treaty relationship with provinces rather than having to always fight it out. And I think this is this leads us nicely into the final thing that I want to talk about, which is the ongoing struggle with uh, Wet'suwet'en people and the solidarity actions that are happening across the country. Right, like we are recording this in advance. We are not you are not going to get the latest news, unfortunately, on the Wet'suwet'en by the time you hear this. But I mean, the context, the very brief context, is that there is a natural gas pipeline that is getting built through northern BC. It is going through the traditional terrors of the Wet'suwet'en people. And the Wet'suwet'en have said no. The hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en have said no um, and have set up essentially a blockade. That blockade was uh, kind of violently um, torn down by the RCMP. And uh, and construction I was followed right behind it. <laughs> so, I mean, as you're hearing this, they're probably in the middle of trying to construct this pipeline, this natural gas pipeline project. This natural gas pipeline project connects to an LNG project that's supposed to be 30 to $40 billion that's being built on the coast of northern BC. And um, the Alberta hook on this is that AIMCO, our pension manager, Crown Corporation in this province, has announced on Boxing Day, you know, one of the big... Uh, news days of the year that they were investing four and a half billion dollars of workers' pension money into this coastal gasoline pipeline. This, this coastal gasoline pipeline that increasingly looks like if it does get built, will be built at the end of a gun. Um, and and then the the following kind of reaction from um, you know indigenous movements across this country that have shut down ports, that have shut down highways, that have shut down railroads, that have shut down the the government of British Columbia. Um, I mean, where, what's your take on all this and where, where are you at? 
Well, and it's also important to note that um, CGL is a subsidiary of TransCanada, and, and the CGL pipeline ties into the existing TransCanada pipeline, natural gas pipelines that exist all throughout Alberta um, and other provinces as well and down into the United States. And it also ties into, I think, they have agreements in place with some First Nations to give them natural gas. Um, so, again, that would have been through IBAs and things like that. Um, a very, very, very complex issue. We've seen something like this similar with the Idle No More movement around the unilateral imposition of resource development and changing the rules and things like that. Um, and then again, it's with younger people and younger generations becoming more aware of Indigenous rights and what this country is built upon, the foundation of treaty and Indigenous rights and the agreements. Uh, it's only a matter of time before you continue to see some of these pushbacks and these actions. Um, and particularly, there is some chatter on Twitter around understanding the issue. And as complex as it is, there's some speaking points from the elected council or the the members that support the elected council. Well, there's agreements in place. There's also some Twitter chatter around um, opportunities for changing the alignment of the pipeline to go around traditional territories and not go right through that that were given um and one thing that's being missed in all of this conversation is that consultation is fantastic but consultation is meaningless without accommodation um so what the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en were looking for was that accommodation effort from cgl and, and others and the governments um to say well, we're, we'll consult and we'll talk about this project and, and the benefits of the project, but there has to be some accommodation as well. And in the terms of, of Chief Adam, Adam's letter, um, we're seeing that, again, there's a lack of accommodation in their request to uh, the provincial government. And, and that is something that has changed recently with this new government, the Liberal government, and especially with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, is that um, there was a lot of pushback on that. The consultation, the courts ruled, was meaningless. It was basically just note-taking exercises, which, again, is an old-school approach to consultation, And whereas we'll, we'll just talk to you, but we don't really have to do anything. Well, now the courts and now this government has said, well, no, you have to do some sort of accommodation in order to get things moving forward in the right direction. Um, so I think we're only going to continue to see... Um, some of these actions and it's and it's about time and i think in in particular with bc like many people who were watching the unveiling of the undrip legislation and things like that i was uh, excited and 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 heartened to see that kind of approach but now with what's happening it seems like it was all just for show because it doesn't amount to changing anything and what's the purpose of doing anything if you're not going to change uh change the relationship and they're conversation around reconciliation is dead and things like that well, I, I say that it it's not dead because it never existed it never started in order for reconciliation to start you have to stop violating people's rights and that obviously has not happened since the apology in 2008 and and even stretching out to today yeah, like, I mean, we we're bringing back full circle to the intro, right? Whereas, like, if reconciliation is dead, you know, what killed it? I mean, you say it never existed in the first place. Uh, totally fair. I mean, I think there's no better kind of visual representation of reconciliation being dead than the RCMP dismantling the sign that said reconciliation mm -hmm. on the Wet'suwet'en uh, blockade. Um, 
I mean, I am extremely heartened right now to, I, I believe in a diversity of tactics fundamentally, right? Like I'm incredibly happy to see like a true working class people's movement happening uh, and real momentum behind kind of say Bernie Sanders campaign in the United States. But I'm also like what's going on right now when you're blockading train tracks and roads and ports that is just as important, if not more important than any election, right? That has more democratic content than any policy book. Right. And it, it is training more people, getting more people involved in, in, in actual democracy than like knocking on a door. Not mm-hmm. to say that you shouldn't do those things. I just think that, that those things have like higher value. And that, that, you know, these blockades and these direct actions have more potential to make the world a better place than, you know, the fanciest best speech ever delivered by, by any politician ever. Right. Fundamentally, like direct action is the way forward. It is the way things improve. And, um, you know, white people are going to collect their tongues, the powers that be, the, the people who benefit from the status quo will, will clutch their pearls. But, you know, fundamentally, like, fuck them, right? Like, this is how progress is made. Um, any kind of final thoughts before we close it out? Well, and, and it's important to, to remember that all of these things that are happening, uh, the blockades, the railways being shut down and things like that, that's not our doing. That's not indigenous people's doing. We did not ask for the railways to be built through our reserves. We didn't ask for for our lands to be taken away at bottom barrel prices for uh, railway companies to steamroll a steam engine through and things like that. That was done for Canada's ease and 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 leaders at the time to make money and whatever else. So again, it it when you start to look at all these complexities in the relationship between Canada and Indigenous people. You have to remember that, and the listeners have to remember that it's not our doing. We didn't do any of this stuff. It was all created for us by people who thought that they knew better. And now what we're seeing is the ramifications of all those poor decisions and, and poor choices and, and poor economic investments and whatever else. Um, and that in order for us to move beyond that as a country, we have to come to that understanding first and then work together on on making better choices and that means having a conversation and then accommodating each other yeah. so that we and, can get along and and building an economy that works for everyone that mm-hmm. meets everyone's basic needs where we're not dependent on you know x global corporation making 20% on some random oil and gas development that's probably just going to leave us with a bunch of environmental liabilities anyways anyways rob hool Thank you so much for coming on the pod. I really do appreciate it. It's that time of the show where people can follow you on Twitter. You can plug any projects you're working on. Uh, how can people kind of keep up with what you're up to? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Nihal Rob. Um, um, I tweet somewhat regularly. Um, yes, it's a great Twitter account. Please, follow. I try to I try to get out there, and and I've written some articles that are, that have talked about Edmonton's history. Um, I am presenting at an upcoming symposium on heritage around indigenous naming in the city of Edmonton. So uh, that's interesting. So it's it, I'm trying to continue to advocate and be this voice of, of helping people understand what the real situation is in, in Canada and Alberta and in the city of Edmonton as well. So. Yeah, and I think your Twitter account and the stuff you've written for eCamp or whatever, um, the Edmonton City as a Museum project, yeah. has been extremely useful. Like, we linked to it in another project, uh, another podcast that we did on, on Frank Oliver. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, give Rob a follow. He's definitely um, a really awesome dude to follow on Twitter. Um, it's also that time of the show where we talk about how you can keep this podcast going. 
And one of the ways that you can support this podcast, the very easy way to support this podcast is to rate, review, and subscribe to us. So if you're not, if you're listening to this, you're not subscribed, hit that subscribe button on your podcatcher of choice. I think that also really helps us uh, is if you're on Apple podcasts, and I think like 70 to 80% of our listeners are on Apple podcasts is, is to give us a review to actually write out a review review and say, you know, Oh my God, Duncan Kinney's interview with Rob, who was amazing. (laughs) Um, it really opened up my eyes to settler indigenous relations, whatever, write anything you want. Just give us a five-star review and actually write some text out. It really does help us. The other way that you can really help us out. And one of the things that is key to kind of us continuing as an independent media project is financial support. So one way that you can do that is just to go to progress report, the progress slash patrons and become a $5, a $10, a $15 a month donor and join the 250 other folks who, uh, who contribute to help keep us going, to help keep Jim and I in groceries and keep a roof over our heads. So just put in your credit card and contribute. We would really appreciate it. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, or comments that you think I need to hear, you can reach me on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at duncank at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for the amazing theme. Thanks again to Rob Fool for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Did you know that Progress Alberta is part of a national community of leftist podcasts on the Ricochet Podcast Network? You can find the Alberta Advantage, 49th Parallel, Kino Lefter, Well Reds, The Progress Report, Les Ficelles, Out of Left Field, and Unpacking the News, as well as a bunch of other awesome podcasts at Ricochet Media or wherever you download.